0: This episode of The Flush Podcast is brought to you by Walton's Nutrisource Pet Foods, Aluma Trailers, and by Onyx Hunt. My guest today is Neil Tashney from Deep Portage Learning Center in Hackensack, Minnesota. Neil is part of a team hosting an upland bird camp this summer. It's a camp they've put on for the past 30 years. They teach young bird hunters everything from hunting basics to perfecting their aim to training their own bird dogs. We'll find out how this camp has changed his life and how it may impact yours. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day and now that app is available in our vehicles. Yep, Onyx did it. They launched Apple CarPlay. That means when you plug your phone into your vehicle you now have the option to open up the Onyx app right on the dash of your hunting rig. No more holding your phone while driving which is obviously dangerous and you get all of the same layers on your vehicle dash that you get on your phone. You can see the aerial view of your location while driving down the road just like You'd see if you're using your own maps, apps, ways, or Google Maps, except now you can find out if the properties around you are open to the public, the landowner's name that owns the land. And if you're in North Dakota, you can see if that land is posted without even touching your phone. To use this feature, simply make sure your Onyx app is up to date. And if you're not an iPhone user, don't worry, Onyx is currently working on the same platform for Android phones too. Apple CarPlay, the latest incredible feature from Onyx Hunt. Always know where you stand and now where you drive with Onyx Hunt. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton. Good morning. Good morning. How uh, are you? I'm tired. Yeah, you look tired. They, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it is Tuesday, April 18th, and last night was opening night of the NHL, Lord Stanley's playoffs.
1: Yes, and the game was
0: went a little late it went a little it? late, a little late yeah. yes i am a wild fan and they went to double overtime and they finally pulled it out what a game it was my really goodness good a lot really of good. oh playoff hockey there's i'm sorry there's nothing else like it
1: no i agree i mean i mean it, mean it puts the regular season to shame it's almost pointless to watch the regular season they're two completely different oh, styles and man. paces of
0: play You can, I mean, just the intensity, every shift. I mean, it is, it just, you know, like I, I can't, I grew up playing baseball, watching baseball. My grandpa had baseball on in the background when we'd be fishing and whatever we were doing, we listened to every game and I just loved baseball. But a lot of that was because I didn't have hockey in our town growing up, so I didn't play it. I love the game of hockey now. It is. It's
1: a blast. I grew up, we played street hockey every single day in the summer. Like, that's just what we did as kids. Hockey was really big in my hometown.
0: Yeah. And here's my, here's where I struggle right now. You've got these NHL players that they can barely walk. Their bones are broken and they're out there playing and skating. I'm sorry, but Byron Buxton to start the season for the (laughs) Minnesota Twins played DH four days and then got a day off. He's made of glass. He is. I don't. I, I. I just can't. I have lost so much respect for the game of baseball because they don't need rest. Yeah. In my opinion, they're in the prime of their life. Yeah. You know, they're never going to be in better shape. And you can't bat four times and then play the next day. Like, what is it? Oh, a just, hockey
1: player will take a stick to the face, lose some teeth, and go back out on yes. the ice. After oh that.
0: my gosh, hockey players are just another breed. Absolutely. Anyway, I'm a little tired. Yeah, that's all, right. that's all right. Yeah. Um, and you, a lot of people don't know this, you produce this show, yeah, and you've done thousands of other podcasts, yeah, most of them in the sports world. Yeah, yeah, no, I started out doing sports. I think it was like I did a.
1: Sports podcasting for five years before I started doing these outdoors ones. So, this yeah. is a fun time of year when it's the playoffs. So we have these late games because we live in Minnesota and they're out playing on the
0: West Coast. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. So, I know we have audience all over the country and I'm specific to Minnesota teams here right now, but uh, Anthony. LaPanta, the play-by-play for the Minnesota yeah, Wild. Yeah, and I produce
1: a show with him and Michael Russo, who yeah. is probably the best hockey writer
0: in all of the country. Easy. Yeah. He has to be. What's honest. it like producing their podcast every week? It's,
1: <laughs> it's a lot of fun just because they're two knowledgeable guys, but they also are like best friends. So they just pick on each other, yeah. which makes it even more fun. Yeah. And everybody's got an opinion. So I don't know. It's it's just a good time. It's really cool getting to know the guys. Like Yeah.
0: Worst Seats in the House is you? the name of the podcast. Yeah. And I listen to it. Yeah. I mean, it's good information because they they are so well connected with the team. A lot of podcasts, you know, sports related are not as Connected, so that's why I find that one really interesting.
1: I'm lucky; a lot of the, the sports podcasts I do are with sports journalists, mm-hmm. so they all have the inside scoop. You know, yeah. I also work with uh, Roy Smalley of the Twins on the baseball podcast as well. So we have an old baseball player's insight, which is just something else you don't really that get. old
0: school mindset. Does he complain about what I just mentioned? The DH and the take a day off. I think he, he, he is an
1: old school guy, but he likes some of the new school stuff. So he's he can be bent a little on that. He likes the new pet the
0: the new pitch count. Everybody likes sure. that. Well, they've lost me as a as a hardcore baseball fan. I just I can't do it. The, the, I mean, baseball's
1: the better to see in person. It's yeah. just the experience of going to the ballpark, eating the food. That's that's baseball. That's fun to me, but I would never sit and watch one on TV. I can't, I, I, can't.
0: I love the game. Yeah. I love the game, but not the way it's managed today. Yep. It's lost the interest for me. Yep. My kids, you know, they're big time into. Into the hockey, too. I mean, the action is nonstop, and these guys are just flying. They're giving their all, putting their bodies on the line. And then we sit down for baseball, and he's like, and two, two count. <laughs> oh, struck him out. <laughs> okay. Yay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then you hear. yeah. And then you have a new pitcher every Da-da-da-da-da. every inning nowadays yes, because they can't pitch for the game. Yes, they, they go inning, 55 or. pitches. They're out. Okay, enough of this talk. We've <laughs> got to get into the world of up and bird hunting. Anyway, um, flashback today. But before I do, I'm going to bring in our guest, Neil Tashney from the Deep Portage Learning Center in Hackensack, Minnesota. Good morning, Neil. Good morning. Are you a Wild fan? I am. Did you stay up last night, too? No way! <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, boy. How how far did you make it into the game? I didn't uh, even watch it, so what? I, I, I was no, I don't have cable or anything like that. So I just uh, I'm a wild fan, but you know, they don't interest me as much as high school hockey or college hockey does. So,
0: so we have in Minnesota, and we have a lot of listeners to this mm-hmm. show in Minnesota. So that's why I'm okay talking about this. Um, uh, the greatest sporting event in our country arguably, is Minnesota's Boys State High School Hockey Tournament. And if you've never seen it, they pack that arena.
1: They were doing numbers bigger than pro sports games that same
0: day. Like, that's how many people showed up.
1: Like, 18,000 people showed up for high school hockey.
0: It's amazing. What's your history with Minnesota's high school hockey, Neil?
1: Well,
2: I grew up in White Bear, which holds the record for more state title appearances without a win. So that's yeah. always good. <laughs> <laughs> Do you also E Diner? Uh, I wouldn't say hate, but no, there's a dislike there. But, uh, you know, we, we learned how to skate before we learned how to walk where I grew up. So it's, you know, high school hockey, we, my brother and his friends, we, we even form a trip around, you know, an ice fishing trip the weekend of the state hockey tournament. It's, it's that important to us to watch the games. And it's that like you said, the intensity of those three games is is unmatched in, in any other setting. It's, it's just incredible. Those, those, you know, 16, 17 year old kids out there playing for their careers, you know, getting, getting the spotlight and something
0: doesn't get any better than that. So Mm -hmm. then they also get to show off their hockey hair flows. It's right. It's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Um, let's see here. The flush fact today, I'm going to ask both of you, Neil and Brandon, how far do Woodcock typically fly during their annual winter migration? Brandon, you go first, take a stab. Like how many miles?: Yeah, how many miles? Oh geez. on average.
1: Uh, I'll guess 2,000. OK. Neil? I would be in that same
2: ballpark. Yeah, I mean, I, I know where they fly to. <laughs> it depends, where, you know, where they're, where they're going. I don't know the exact yeah, This is not a
0: This is yeah. a tough, actual yeah. factual question because every bird does their own thing. But according to the Rough Grouse Society, during fall migration, the average woodcock travels 870 miles between its breeding and wintering areas. The average distance they fly in a single night of migration is 160 miles. They fly at altitudes of about 50 feet, and they take between 25 and th- to 30 days to do it, typically stopping four or five times along the way. Wow. There you All go. Right. Yep, It's an interesting bird, and the reason I, I did a little research on them is because they've migrated back up. And I've spent a little bit of time out in the woods with Daisy here last week. Before um, in Minnesota, there's a resting, quiet period, um, just so that you're not running dogs and bumping birds that might be on nest. Now, obviously, the snow this year is is really pushed everything, delayed the migration. But oh, it felt so good to be back out there, Daisy. The first bird, you know, she it flushed and. She kind of like turned and ran a couple feet and then she was like, Oh, that's right, I need to stop. And then from that moment on, she was rock solid again. And oh, it just felt so good to be back out in the woods. Saw a couple of Rough Grouse as well. Um but Neil, I bring it up because this is that's your neck of the woods up there. And you're in the Rough Grouse capital of Minnesota. I, I'm not gonna call it the capital, but in a in an area that's very well known. For rough grouse and woodcock, uh, what does what the spring condition look like for you today on Tuesday, April 18th?
2: Well, we we just lost almost all the snow, I don't know, a couple days ago, then it came back. No. <laughs> um, so yeah, I had the first woodcock in the yard probably a week ago today, probably last Tuesday or Wednesday, I had one painting in the yard I haven't seen many around. I do, you know, take a lot of uh, walks with the dog, and he hasn't hasn't bumped into many yet. Um, But the grouse just started drumming, like you said. We are for sure two weeks behind schedule of a what you know what is normal now, but a normal spring. Um, uh, For sure, about two weeks behind. So yeah, I'm looking out at the lake. There's the shorelines are still very well intact. There's still scattered snow clumps in the woods, but so we're we're definitely behind schedule. But Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully yeah. it'll turn around quick here.
0: <laughs> it, it can happen really quick. Obviously, the yeah. extreme heat you know, isn't likely to return uh, soon, but it'll be gone really quick. For somebody that's never experienced or doesn't understand what that woodcock mating ritual in the spring looks like, sounds like, can you paint the picture for us?
2: Yeah. So, uh, Woodcock uh, have a pretty unique uh, display in the spring. So, when the males come back and they, they find a suitable area that they find, hey, this is, this is where I need to be. This is where the hen needs to be or the female. Uh, they'll do a peent. And there's there's a lot of different words people use to describe it. I was always a zeep. Some people call it a paint, but they'll do that little sharp uh, paint there uh, out of their beaks. And they'll do that for a little bit, and they'll kind of move around in a little circle, a little circle, and then eventually uh, they'll take flight. And this always happens right about dawn, or sorry, about dusk. And then they'll start, you know, going all the way up in the air, and their wings make that beautiful, um, kind of that squeaky noise. It's kind of hard to describe, but it's just really squeaky sounding, really kind of just very interesting how they do that with their wing feathers. And then they kind of do a few circles up in the air, going around and around, and whoosh, then they go right back into the ground, pretty much right where they were kind of sitting uh, right beforehand. And they'll do that all evening and a little bit into the, uh, into the night hours and hopefully attracting a, a female that comes in and, and finds them.
0: It's a cool sight that I have yet to see in person. Um, I've seen videos and it's, it's something that I, I want to come up there. I, we just don't have a lot of woodcock where I live. You have to travel a couple hours to really get into them, especially during the, the spring season. Um, how common is it to see this spectacle?
2: If you can find, you know, anywhere you would hunt them in the fall, young aspen by uh, an opening, very common up here. Um, like I said, we, we've had them in the yard painting uh, where I lived previous to here. We had them in the yard. If, yeah, if you find the habitat, they're, they're going to lay eggs in, you're going you're gonna to find painting birds for sure.
0: Uh, What kind of experience do you have monitoring rough grouse populations in the spring drumming?
2: Um, here at uh, Deep Portage uh, it's a pretty unique landscape uh, it's 6,307 acres of Cass County land it's managed for uh, timber it's managed for recreation and then of course uh, we have our own uh, campus for the learning center but the past four springs um, I've just kind of taken it uh, to myself and kind of the volunteers and staff at Deep Portage to do the annual drumming counts on campus and around the, around the forested areas so basically yeah we take one Saturday in April or May when, when we we think that the drumming is peaking, and take a different trail, take a different area, and we spend the morning out in the woods counting drumming counts, <laughs> just just like the DNR does. So it's very similar, um, and we kind of tally those up and, and go from there.
0: It's such a cool sight to see. Now that I have seen quite a bit of, mm-hmm. I actually sat in a blind and, and filmed uh, uh, a cameraman, a, ph- a photographer that he spends his spring days waiting for the grouse to return to the logs. And it's interesting how when they get drumming, I mean, they'll sit there all night, all day sometimes. They'll be drumming in pitch black. I mean, they just, they drum and drum and drum and go, 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 go. I mean, that thing was there for a couple hours the last time I was in the blind watching a log and just would jump down, jump back up. You know, I mean, it's just a cool, cool sound to hear, a cool sight to see. It's a, it's a staple in the North Woods, and uh, I'm wondering, Neil, based on your uh, experience in the woods the last few years, how do you feel the population is uh, currently at?
2: It, uh, from last fall, I can, you know, give you uh, an update. It was fantastic. Uh, we've, we've had the perfect winter conditions the past few winters, in, including this, or as much as we complain about, Oh, another snowstorm, another, mm-hmm. this, Oh no, the grouse just eat it up they They've, they've, they get away from the predators, they can stay warm at night. Um, it, you know, everywhere I I went uh, talked to people from Ely, Grand Rapids, you know, but that uh, everyone was just raving how how many birds they saw, and we're still seeing at the end of this winter. Uh, every day into work, I see birds and taking walks, I see them. <laughs> I've had them in the yard too. Oh, I love so it. So, we're, I we're it. doing, I think, I think this was a great winter, and if if spring holds out, and um, kind of offers a good, another reproduction year. I think it will just be as good. It's, you know, those cycles, it's tough to predict, uh, what's going to come out of those. I know it's just the male counts, but if it's, if last year was any indicator of how many really did make it through the season, it
0: should be another great, great year for them. Love to hear that. Explain to somebody that might not understand why all the snow is a blessing for rough grows.
2: Yeah. So, uh, There's been a lot of research in the the past, you know, you know, 80 years of of rough grouse management of, you know, what temperature threshold they can take without, without freezing to death and without using those energy reserves and deep snow allows them to burrow into the snow. So they'll literally at night if they need to, they'll, you know, be on a branch and, you know, dive right into the snow bank or burrow as far as they need to go. Um, to stay warm and away from predators, and if they don't get that opportunity, well, the owls, the the fox, or whatever's chasing them in the winter has fair game on them all winter. But so that that deep snow really helps them, you know, stay
0: protected uh, from predators and the weather. Nice. Um, you mentioned your dog. What kind of dog do you have? A crazy one. <laughs> <laughs> He's a,
2: a German Wire Hair Pointer.
0: Gotcha. Three and a half years old, I see. Yep. Gotcha. And obviously. Upland bird hunting is near and dear to your heart. Uh, Let's get into the Deep Portage Learning Center and your role there. What is the Deep Portage Learning Center? Yeah, we
2: are uh, one of a few of the uh, environmental uh, learning centers around the state that specializes in outdoor recreation. Um, So there's a few of us spread out around the state, uh, north, south, east, and west uh, around the state, and we uh, specialize in getting in the school year, you know, school year kids to come on up from the Twin Cities, from all over Minnesota, you you know, we're all over the map to come for overnight trips uh, and to do seasonal activities that we can do that the weather and uh, kind of the conditions allow us to do. So, uh, you know, snowshoeing and skiing in the winter to canoeing in the spring and fall, ecology, biology. And then, of course, in the summer, we transition into summer camps. And those are uh, kind of the staple of deep portage has always been the four corn series. So getting kids firearm safety or bow hunters education. Uh, we're just really into getting kids outside and and using uh, canoes and uh, survival techniques and just showing them, hey, you can do this outside. And um you know, it's okay to be uncomfortable in uncomfortable situations. <laughs> yeah. Getting exposed to just you know something new, maybe something to to give him to do outside into a new hobby, perhaps.
0: And deep portage has been around for I want to say fifty years. Is that right? Yeah, this
2: uh, Saturday is our fiftieth uh, anniversary celebration. So this is the the big five zero year.
0: Wow! Congratulations to you and everybody up there. What keeps the doors open? How do you guys do it? Is where does the money come from?
2: We have, uh, beside, well, you know, of course, we have our programming. So we see about 7,000 school kids a year and about 500 summer campers. But outside of uh, our program fees, we just have a terrific donor base. You know, People like being outside. People like just the idea of what an outdoor learning center can be. So we are really blessed to have really an incredible amount of donors <laughs> who want to see this type of programming succeed and go another 50 years. Um, and it's just been a it's been really awesome to be a part of to see people uh, donate their time, expertise uh, and, and, and their finances to help us out. So. Yeah,
0: And our personal connection, the two of us, you and I, is uh, George Lyle and George's family is, uh, is one of those families that has supported your camp over the years, if, if I'm correct, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, George Lyle on TV. Yeah. His his nephew, George, uh, and I worked together for a few years together, but uh, his family has been strong supporters of organization for many years uh, at Deep Portage. So they've been a, a great uh, a great resource
0: for us. Very cool. Um, and the reason that I think we're having you on today is because you reached out. Oh, gosh, I don't know when it was, but you said we have an upland <clears throat> bird camp. And just opened, uh, or not just opened, but the um, you can sign up now. The sign up for the this coming Upland Bird Camp is now open. So that's why we wanted to wait and do this now when people can go to sign up. Um, for the past 30 years, you guys have held this Upland Bird Camp in the summer. What is it?
2: Upland Bird Camp is a very unique experience. Um, It's exactly what it says in the title. We are uh, a camp. It's a week long, six days, uh, five nights, everything upland, uh, that we can possibly throw in in six days. <laughs> wow. Um, it was started by Upland, uh, enthusiasts, uh, in the area, uh, local area, Longville, Pine River, Hackensack, and, uh, RGS volunteers as really a way to introduce youth to the sport, uh, and the traditions of Upland hunting. So, uh, these volunteers have kept it going for, for 30 years. And of course the staff at Deep Portage have, have, been tremendous in that over the years too. So yeah, just a way to get kids introduced, um, and ho- hopefully hooked <laughs> and yeah. appreciate how, you know, the, Traditions of upland hunting.
0: Can Brandon sign up, or is he too old? What's the age cutoff?
2: <laughs> the age cutoff, I believe, is 15. I think so. It's uh, you have just, to have your firearms. Just, yeah, just, just barely missed it. Yeah, just barely. You know, if you have a birth certificate that says you're 15, <laughs> or
1: something
0: if he shaved his beard, yeah. could he? <laughs> could I sneak <laughs> him in? <laughs> For sure. Well, um, I know it's not only Minnesota kids that can come to this camp. It's Correct. it's people from anywhere that want to travel mm-hmm. into the North uh, woods to experience this, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, we have had a few from North and South Dakota from a few connections. And I think I had an inquiry from Colorado. That would be a first this year. Really? Um, so yeah, I think the word has gotten out a little bit. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, yeah, you can really be from anywhere. You just have to have a valid, whatever state you live in, firearm safety certificate. Cause, uh, you know, make sure you're safe
0: before mm-hmm. you come to camp and, and away we go. Well, let's, let's break this camp down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, how many kids come, or, or what's like a full camp? A full camp would be 40 campers. Okay. So it's a pretty intimate camp then for a week. It's not hundreds of kids out there. Correct. Yep. Okay. Um, what do they do when they get there? Yeah, kind of run down, kind of a maybe day by day, or,
2: and feel free to to stop me and ask questions as we go. But yeah, so... Again, it's, we're just trying to give them an introduction, not giving them too much information. But you know, hopefully, they're going to find something at camp that really interests them, that they can take into the field with them or take back home with them, um, uh, improve their shooting skills, or you know whatnot. So we really try to hit a lot of different elements to, to kind of strike a chord with them. So when they get to camp, we, you know, the first day is all about an introduction to, uh, to shotguns and shot shells. And hey, what what is a shot shell? What is a shotgun? How do these things work? <laughs> we don't we don't take anything for granted. You know, we want them to understand, you know, how does a pattern work? You know, what size different shot can you use? You know, what are the different shots available for you to use? Um, we introduce them to the different actions of shotguns, the different gauges, you know, just that introductory stuff that every kid should just be familiar with, you know, when they're going to handle a fire and be in the, in the uplands, there's so many, there's so much good science out there. You know, that's, Hey, you should be using this for pheasants. You should be using this for sharp tails. Well, we kind of talk about that and just so they're kind of aware of what those terms mean
0: uh, when when they get to that point. I'm going to jump in here real quick because shot shells and shotguns. I mean, those are both topics that even experienced hunters often ask questions about, Mm -hmm. you know, so uh, it's, that's something that I think when kids are sitting there and you're, and you're talking to them, what, what are their reactions to all this? What are their questions that they ask you?
2: They definitely have a lot of great questions because, you know, about, you know, essentially like how does the, the shot shell, hit number twos versus number sixes, essentially which has more power. You know, kids, are, kids love that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> they like going to the stores. And they like looking at the boxes and, oh, this is bismuth. Oh, what's that? What's that new thing? They're very interested in what the numbers mean and what the materials mean. So uh, yeah, we, you know, we put the boxes on the table and we, we're going to talk about, you know, I have uh, a shotgun shell I've split open and say, this is two shot. This is the size of it. You know, this is how it carries its weight down, you know, at 40 yards. This is six shot. You know, this is what the size looks like and what are the pros and cons of using different types of shot shells. So that's really what they're interested in. You know, they hear a lot of stuff at home or they hear a lot of stuff on TV. And right. I think they're just very curious to begin with, right. Of, of what does this, what does it all mean? What does it look like? So we try to really show them, you know, what they're hearing on TV or or at home.
0: Hands-on is the best way to teach. Um, Do they come with knowledge of different levels? I mean, what, what kind of children, or I shouldn't say children, but what kind of young hunters come to camp and what information do they already have when they get there?
2: Yeah, I would say it's about a 50-50 split of kids who have hunted uh, upland and kids who haven't, which is just terrific. Uh, We have a lot of returners, um, so that really helps too. But yeah, that's why we kind of start at the basics, um, because right... 50% 50% of the kids are out of 40. Maybe 20 have never seen a shotgun shell. <laughs> All right. So they yeah. need to know. Right. And they're just always curious. We get a lot of kids too, that are on trap teams at school. So that really helps too. And they kind of help the new kids along in, in, in very supportive ways and making sure everyone knows what they're doing.
0: I saw in the, on your website that each kid will shoot roughly a case of shells. Is that accurate?
2: Oh, at least. Yeah, (laughs) for sure.
0: (laughs) How does that happen? Are you guys, are they shooting every day?
2: Yes. uh, Every day, but Sunday. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we have, yep, designated range time.
0: Okay. And is it, Going through a full sporting clay station, or or where what kind of shooting are they doing? Yeah, yeah. So we have a ten
2: station sporting clays uh, course on on campus there, right at Duke Portage. So the kids about a fifteen minute walk down the road uh, campus. It's right on site. And we start from the beginning. So day one, even if you're a state champion, you know, trapper, clay, target shooter, <laughs> we're starting at the beginning with these kids. Stance and fundamentals is huge. Day one, we, you know, we're only going to see singles today. Maybe we'll get into a couple pairs by the end of it. We're just, you know, trying to get those fundamentals down. Hey, okay, how do you swing? How do you point? You know, what, you know, what should your arms? How are you going to move your arms to your target? Because 10 stations, it's it's a lot of information. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of new targets. You know, we have ones that go away. We have ones that come over the head, ones that come at you. So right. um, we get them introduced. And then each day we up the ante. So we make it a little more challenging, but trying to still meet the needs of each individual shooter. Uh, Is, we have many great coaches who, who help out.
0: Is it intimidating for the kids when they pick up that gun and there's maybe somebody sitting next to them that, can, you know, shoot pretty well. And they, they're a little nervous about their own skills.
2: Yeah, we certainly see that. And how we kind of divide the the kids up, um, is we actually go by height, which sounds kind of interesting, but we do that for shotgun sizing. Okay. <laughs> and it, you know, it turns out usually the older kids with more experience are, are generally taller. And then the shorter kids are, you know, younger, less experienced. So that kind of really helps. Um, we also, right, One or two kids a year we'll get that are pretty trepid about doing it, but we have, you know, low, uh, what's called, low recoil shells. We'll take them individually maybe for a little bit. So, right, we really meet uh, where any kid is. We try to meet at their level and uh, try to get them better in baby steps.
0: If you're an outdoor lover on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you want to haul. Aluma Trailers, well, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that, Aluma Trailers tow like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. I love my dog, and like you, I always want to make sure that she has what she needs to stay healthy year-round and perform at her best in the field. That's why I feed Daisy Nutrisource high-performance dog food. Nutrisource dog food comes with their good for life system that includes four key ingredients that work together to support gut health, heart health, and the overall well-being of our dogs. I have complete confidence that my dog has all of the nutrition to excel in the field and make it through a rigorous hunting season. I've seen it firsthand, and she loves her food. Take it from me and my dog Daisy. Nutrisource high-performance dog food can help your dog reach their full potential. Find the food that's right for your dog at NutriSourcePetFoods.com. Hunting season might be over, but that doesn't mean it's time to mope around the house and hang your head. That's because it's meat season. Now's a great time to make the most of all that tasty meat you harvested. Maybe it's time to try a new recipe, sprinkle on a new seasoning, or make your own jerky and sausage. Trust me, it's not that hard to do, and it can be fun for the whole family. It doesn't matter what you harvested or what you want to prepare with it waltons has you covered waltons has everything but the meat that's their motto waltons.com has everything and i mean everything you need to process and prepare your meat plus they have an online community called meat gistics that's full of recipes and meat processing information the sky's the limit my friends you don't have to be a pro to cook like one head to waltons.com today and enjoy meat processing season Thankfully, it's a season that never ends. What advice do you have for somebody that has kids that they're trying to teach how to shoot that uh, you could pass along to them? It should be
2: successful uh, as in shoot at ground targets first. (laughs) That, hey, you can prove you can break one of these, you know, put a put a clay target on the ground 15 yards away and break it. Break it again. Hey, you, you can do this. You know, it, it's not the gun. It's not the shell. It's it's it, you can do this. And then, you know, baby steps from there, make it easy um, so that way they can continuously get better. And hey, you're going to fail a bunch once they start flying. <laughs> it's, it's as we know, as hunters, as, mm-hmm. you know, sporting case uh, shooters are going to miss. And that's part of it. You know, follow that target all the way to the ground. Do everything right. Even when you miss, I think is probably the biggest piece of advice I could give somebody is do it right make it look good even though you're missing
0: (laughs) sure I Mm -hmm. have to imagine you've seen a lot of joy in some of those kids I've I've introduced several people to shooting their first time and when they hit that first target Mm -hmm. they look at you they look at everybody around they're like oh I like something (laughs) something clicks right Mm -hmm. in their mind they're like okay that makes sense. I can do that again, and the just pure joy that comes out of that—the facial right. expressions. I, you have some stories that stand out in all your years of doing this.
2: Yeah, it's. I have a few, yeah, a few and the the one thing that I always you know we always see at Upland Camp is this is a wing shooting school that is de- designed to get you better at bird hunting. And we get a ton of kids from their local trap teams and trap shooting and clay target shooting is, is a hundred percent a different activity. (laughs) So they always walk up with the gun pointed at the ground and they get in the cage and then they start missing and then they start missing and No matter how many times you tell them this, you can't be doing that. This is, you know, get set, get ready. And then finally they listen and then finally they hit one. They're like, Oh, (laughs) I get
1: this. (laughs) You
2: know, we're preparing them for wing shooting. So yeah, you're going to get kids that are going to miss you know 75, 80 percent of targets and that's okay. but like you said when they're when they're hitting those a, a few at a time, taking baby steps, right? The, the smiles on their faces and like, hey, I can do this. It's just going to take me longer than another kid. <laughs> and that's okay. Um, so yeah, it's, that, I think that's what makes Upland Bird Camp so special is the, the the differences in shooting abilities. And then the kids who are good are always been so supportive of the kids who need help and giving them tips, giving them a, a high five when they get back to the bench. It's always been just a really supportive
0: community. Love it. Beyond shooting, what other... Um activities do you take these kids through? Yeah.
2: So we're really lucky to have a a tremendous group of volunteers that, uh, dedicates their time to come in and do special speeches and, and lectures and, uh, activities for the kids. Um, one of our favorites is we have a, a local, um, DNR biologists come down from Bemidji, and what he'll do is he'll bring uh, a bunch of duck wings and grouse wings and woodcock wings, and he teaches the kids how to ID birds on the wing, uh, try to get an approximate age, and if, you know, what their sex is, if they're male or females, and kids love it. They, they don't seem that interested at first, <laughs> it's kind of funny, and then at the end of the week, like, what was your favorite part? Like, oh, I love learning how to age woodcock wings, or if they're male or female. That, I think that was really useful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Then uh, he'll also bring his radio telemetry gear. Uh, He does a lot of uh, GPS work in his research, and he'll hide uh, the GPS targets in the woods. And he'll literally, just like you see on TV, he'll give the kids that big antenna looking device with the beeper, and away they go. I (laughs) want to go to this
0: camp. It's so fun. (laughs) Um, Hunting ethics and Mm -hmm. safety, I have to imagine that becomes part of this program at some point, right?
2: Yeah. So that's, you know, our biggest takeaway from Upland Bird Camp, besides becoming a a safe, effective wing shooter, is how we go about uh, ethically and responsibly hunting. And, you know, there are so many different good answers to that. Sure. (laughs) There's also a lot of bad answers to that. And we have volunteers that'll come in and not just tell stories, but tell stories with a meeting and get kids to think about their actions uh, of what they're doing out in the field. You know, we... We have a speaker who used to come in and, and as simple as you know he has this story he always tells. And he goes, you know, one day I was up in Saskatchewan and I I shot a Hungarian partridge that went four feet over a property line. And he goes, I could have easily walked over there and grabbed it. No, no, no harm done. It was on private property. Nobody would have seen me. But I took the extra step to walk the quarter mile to that farmhouse and ask permission uh, if I could retrieve. And because of that one simple ask, and, you know, uh, he gained access to like 10,000 acres of private hunting land (laughs) in that day, (laughs) you know, they invited him back. And there's simple stories like that just to to remind the kids, hey, somebody is always watching you. Um, Be nice to people when you're asking permission uh, and how to follow through on that, how to come back year after year, how to be respectful of the community. Um, and, and take care of our resources uh, uh, outside of, uh, of just hunting, how to take care of landowners' uh, land, essentially.
0: So, Do you teach them how to ask permission? We do, yes. That is, <laughs> that is something that I don't know that I've ever heard anybody else do at any camp. How yeah, to it's, ask it's, permission.
2: It's kind of a fun activity we do. So what I'll do is, you know, I have a, a long, long, you know, I've done a lot of private land ownership acquisition in my life. So it's some of our volunteers and we'll, we'll hide behind the door essentially and they have to knock on the door. And we just come up with different scenarios of what we have seen in the past from, from different, you know, from different property owners. And the kids have to ask permission and sometimes they get it and sometimes they don't. <laughs> and we make them think, uh, and make them kind of use, um, well, they're, they're 14 or 15, so they're kind of nervous, <laughs> but mm-hmm. we understand that. But we kind of train them and coach them. Hey, take off your hat when you come to the door. Hey, be responsible. You know, what's the first thing you should say to a landowner, you know, things like that we talk about with them to, like, to better prepare them to be uh, presentable for the hunting community.
0: I think some of our listeners could benefit from this. <laughs> Is there any way to give us a glimpse of how this goes down?
2: Yeah. Like I said, essentially the, you know, for 10 minutes, you know, we, or maybe a little longer, we, we just have a few stories of things we've encountered in the past land ownership wise, bad things and good things that <laughs> we've, you sure. know, that we've, we've all seen going to, you know, uh, people's doorsteps, you know, being ignored or being yelled at or, Hey, yeah, of course he can hunt here. So we just kind of coach them through, Hey, the, the first thing you should really say is, Hey, my name is so-and-so. Do you allow pheasant hunting on your property? Because, you know, that's right there. That's the first thing you should be asking. You know, this is who I am. This is what I'm interested in. And mm-hmm. if they don't, well, you didn't waste any more of their day. And if, you, and if they say, yeah, I do. Now we can start talking. Hey, this is who I am. This is where I'm from. Um, this is what I'm interested in. And um, kind of continue the conversation from there. So,
0: wow, that's awesome. I, I think that's a skill that a lot of times can be intimidating for people. Mm-hmm. and. Right yeah it's it's interesting. So a couple of the places near where I live, I've known the landowners for quite a while. <clears throat> they've given me permission for several years. <clears throat> and now that my kids are coming with too, and also hunting, they've we even though I could call them or text them and you know, let them know. I'm coming out or making, you know, asking is it is it okay to come back out again? I always stop and talk to them in person, and I always bring my kids with too. And I I want them to see what I'm doing and how I'm going about it and uh, you know, talking with the landowners about how things are going for them or if there's anything that they might need help with. <laughs> is there anything out there on the property that I should be looking out for and what have you been seeing? Things like that. And then this year, my Son, last week, um, my oldest, he was the one to ask permission. And he's only eight years old, but I said, this is your turn this year because he was the one that was going to be turkey hunting. And I said, we're going to go talk to Pete and I want you to ask him if it'd be okay for you to hunt again and, and thank him for the, the opportunities that he's already given us. So it just filled my heart watching this this boy go up there. And then Pete jokingly, Listen to him and he goes, No, absolutely not. <laughs> and then sure. got all nervous and blustered. He goes, I'm just kidding. Of course <laughs> you can, you know. But yeah. it's the real life situations that I'm hoping to help him and develop that and confidence and the ability to do it because it's important. Right. Very, yes. very important. That's. I didn't know you guys offered that, but I, I love that that's something that the kids learn when they come there. Yeah. Um, what about dogs? Where, what do they learn about dogs?
2: Yes. Uh, my dog gets to come to work every day. <laughs> so Sweet. they get to be around my bird dog. You know, he's, he loves kids. And, you know, we do a little bit of stuff with him, not too much. Um, because the Thursday, the last full day of camp, and, you know, we've had a, just a, a very awesome connection and a relationship with a, a professional dog dog. Um, kennel and training facility, and probably a lot of listeners know it, uh, Pine Shadows Kennel down in Brainerd, Minnesota. And they're just a terrific Springer Spaniel breeder. But more than that, they just do a tremendous job of training bird dogs. And that's uh, just an awesome experience they provide us. Um, And every year since Upland Camp has been started, they've been right there with us every every year. (laughs) So we head down there. And they have uh, about six or seven different stations for the kids. We break up, uh, you know, the kids into groups and it's, you know, this is the day that transformed, you know, when I didn't know if I was going to come back to deep partage, this was the day I'm like, Oh, I got to come back every year. (laughs) Just just to be part of this. They, the first station they send the kids to really is we're going to cover flushing dogs and pointing dogs. And they put live birds in the field with, you know, with their professional gunners, with their professional trainers and the kids walk behind, um, and the haglins, at Sophie Mark uh, are kind of the owners there. And then they're just terrific. They let the kids walk behind the trainer. The trainer's explaining, hey, this is a flushing breed. Look at him work right. Look at him work left. On the whistle, he's doing this. We know he's getting birdie when we see this. Look what he's doing. And of course, mm-hmm. the pigeon is let go. And boom goes the dynamite. And the dog retrieves the bird. And, you know, what's what's awesome, too, sometimes these dogs are not their dogs. These are like client dogs. And so they mess up and and that's great. So then the kids get to see how a trainer corrects a dog mm-hmm. when they don't bring it back to hand or, hey, maybe he didn't quarter as much as we wanted. I'm going I'm to cast him out again. Um, so And then they bring the pointers out in the field and they show kids, hey, this this is how a dog should point. This is how we don't want them to creep. This is how we do things with the pointing breed. And then, uh, gosh, they have... St- you know, a, a canine 101 uh, kind of medical station that Sophie runs uh, for, for Pine Shadows there. And she talks about, hey, dogs are going to get hit by porcupines. They're going to get dehydrated. <laughs> Things are going to happen. Yeah. Here's how you take care of that. And then they also tr- uh, have one or two service dogs at Pine Shadows that are trained to go into hospitals and, and help people and help uh, people that are sick or people that, uh, hey, need, need, need a dog for the day. And they talk about how they train their dogs. Um, they have a skeet shooting station. And then uh, who could forget the, the the favorite station of all the kids is the puppy station. So they literally bring the puppies out and every kid gets to hold a puppy. And not only that, these trainers are, are so good. They force the kids to say, hey, you know, you are the boss here. Like, I know the puppy is cute, <laughs> they make cute puppy sounds, but hey, you got to have more wins than the dog does. And here's how we're going to teach you that today. And they literally put a, a, a 10-week old puppy, maybe a 14-week old puppy in your hands. They teach kids how to pet them properly, you know, how to get them calm, uh, how to call them, how to make them you know, do things. And then they also do, hey, We're going to show you how to introduce a dog to gunfire right in front of you. And they bring the puppies out in the field and they show you how to whistle for them, how to quarter them, how to shoot and when to shoot, uh, how to train them with birds in front of your feet. It's just, it's it's, it's too much. (laughs) It's so good. I wish I I had more time to explain. It's just like, it's so hands on. And I've been, I've been doing it 10 years now. It's just, it's new to me every time they've, they're so good at what they do for those kids. And cause they're educators and you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're trainers. I know how to talk to kids and dogs alike. They just know how to, how to train them really well.
0: There's something magical, maybe magical isn't right word, but there's something just like, I could sit and watch a, a dog trainer that knows dogs and understands dogs. Mm-hmm. I could watch them all day and mm-hmm. you know, how they understand that, that dog and the tendencies or, you know, whether it's, yawning and and or licking their lips and what that means and just things that that dog is doing in the field and how they navigate around it and get the dog you know to work with them it's so cool to watch I have to imagine that's where the kids are all just wide-eyed you know everything that's happening they're just focused on
2: yes yeah that's it's funny because you say that because when the dogs are in the field with the big dogs and they're running them, the kids are like kind of standing back, like I don't know, should I be doing this? But once they, you know, should I be fun? But once we bring them to that puppy station and they put, really put a, 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 you know, a dog in your hands and show them how to do this right, the kids don't want to leave. <laughs> like, can yeah. I stay here? I don't want to leave this station. This is I too wouldn't much either. fun. I don't blame <laughs> so, them at all. And those trainers, like, exactly, they they're just really good at. What they do, and you know, even when they're talking, if the dog gets off its placeboard board and, and Joni's doing her, hey, this is how we're she puts that dog right on that placeboard. board, like so. Even as she's talking to these kids, she's still training the dog, and it's really good for the kids to see that. Of hey you can't let your dog get away with too much. You can let him get away with some stuff, but mm-hmm. you know, you got to have an obedience here that, you know, is consistent. And that's what they teach the kids. Just be consistent of what you're going to tell your dog. So <laughs> you've be been nice to them and how to treat them.
0: You've been doing this for 10 years. What if some of the parents yes. told you after the fact or things that really stand out to you from experiences with the kids? I have to imagine there's been some pretty amazing testimonials that have come back to you.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, you know, maybe maybe they thank me for now they have to go buy a puppy for their kid. <laughs> um, but you know that has happened. You know, the kid gets home, and uh, I've also seen it where uh, once where a parent had a puppy in the car ready to go for the kid. Like they literally brought the kid to camp to learn how to do it, and then there was the dog waiting for him. Oh, in the truck. how cool! <laughs> was the coolest thing. That I is know, the so coolest. coolest.
0: Oh man! Right.
2: So yeah, and it's it's I hear I don't hear too much from parents, but I hear it from the kids a lot of Hey, this really helped." prepare me for my fall. And we get a lot of repeat kids at least five or 10 a year. This is like their second or third time coming to camp but, you know, they've seen all the lectures, mm-hmm. they've been to the dark and they just can't get enough. It's like, uh, preparing them for kind of their fall shooting season too. So that's a lot where we hear from the kids is just kind of how, how much they learn in one week.
0: Well, it sounds pretty amazing. And anybody listening right now, if they have kids that are interested in this or might be interested in this, Uh, I assume it's going to fill up again. I would encourage people probably to, to head to your website earlier than later to make sure that they can get a spot for their kids, right? Yeah,
2: this is probably probably the biggest uh, week or two here because now I know that you know, soccer and uh, tennis whatever sport you're playing in the summer, I know teams are being picked like right now. Mm-hmm. So that's when parents really start hitting uh, the registration hard. So this is the perfect time and <laughs> to sign up right now.
0: The camp is in August of this year. When is it? Typically, helps.
2: yeah. It's Sunday, July 30th. I believe is the first day. Okay. Um, I can double check my calendars right up in front of me here. Yeah, it's Sunday, July 30th through August 4th, which is a Friday.
0: Gotcha. Um, for you personally, why do you keep doing this? Because upland hunting is amazing. <laughs> I love <laughs> well, it. Agreed. Um, agreed.
2: Right. Yeah. It's just. I, I, I guess that's right, just to show the, the upland hunting kids they can do it. And I, I don't – big game hunt it just doesn't interest me. I, it, it is what it is. I'm glad people do it, but I think this – upland hunting is something everybody can do. And if they want to do it, you know, especially around here, there's so much public land available. You know, all you need, you know, is simple equipment to take a walk down a dirt road up here and go grouse hunting. I think that's what I like to show kids is you don't need, you don't need a deer stand. You don't need to make this, you don't need scent blocker. You can, anyone can do this <laughs> if you really set your mind out to it. And I think that's what really appeals to me is showing kids they can do this uh, once they can drive or I remember with their parents and it's a great activity, right? It's not like, deer hunting where you really, know, you need to know your game. You need to, you need to study your deer. You need to study what's going on, but someone new to hunting can pick up grouse hunting. They, they really can't and, and enjoy it. And, um, I think, you know, the memories I have of in the woods, those crisp October days where it's 25 degrees and sunny. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that right. in the woods. And that's, that's part of the hunting is get these kids Outside on a beautiful day where they can explore um, you know, the woods around us. And that's, that's ultimately what I'm after is giving them a hobby where they can get out in the woods and, and enjoy it, just like I was able to.
0: How about for parents that are you know, active with their kids? What advice might you have based on just the hundreds of kids that you've taught over the years? I mean, is there anything that really stands out to you that, like, hey, this is something that I think is very important to do or not to do?
2: uh in terms of upland hunting
0: yeah i think upland hunting you know that's our our core audience here but just in general you know introducing kids to hunting right. and all the other aspects of yeah. it from gun safety to you know shooting on the wing to dogs mm-hmm. i mean there's just there's a lot that goes into this particular part of hunting but mm-hmm. the reality is you know is it finding Each individual kid where they're at and Mm -hmm. walking alongside of them or what's what is important to you
2: yeah i've had some talk with people over this you know the past year of what's you know what my recommendation for introducing new hunters and and giving them experiences and you know giving them a single shot shotgun with one with one opportunity to, to practice that good wing shooting make your shots count and but most importantly, I think what really sold me and I'm just a, I'm just a different person. You know, I'm different than everyone. Everyone's different, but you know, my dad took me out on adventures. It wasn't, let's just walk a logging road and, or drive a logging road and, and shoot what we see. It was, we're going to go walk this, this river today. We're going to walk these river bottoms. We're going to go take an adventure back to this hog back. Mm. And I think that's what sold, sold it for me was there's more to it than just hunting for me personally. It's right. It's taking those adventures into the woods, learning your plants, learning your animals, and that's what becomes, you know, you become a better hunter. Then that's adding uh, depth uh, into your hunt is appreciating more than just the birds. <laughs> you know, you can go to the woods and appreciate more. Hey, I didn't see anything today, but man, mm-hmm. I did see a lot of this today or I noticed this uh, fall wise. So I think that's what's really important is to have hobbies outside of the hunt be incorporated into it.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. Very well said. I know last week, but Marilyn better from, Pheasants Forever, the new president and CEO, we we talked a little bit about this. But how important it is for kids to experience uh, having to develop their own skills. And I shouldn't say kids. I think everybody. Develop their own skills. Put them to the test out there in the field. But then also just being out there and seeing animals that have to survive every day. Because you appreciate them so much more, and in turn, you then respect them and want to care about the land and the animals in ways that you wouldn't if you never had the opportunity to see them in their wild habitat.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I'm very thankful that when I grew up hunting, we stopped at every beaver cut, we stopped at, you know, every piece of scat along the way, and we're just learning how to be in the woods. And I think that's, that's a missed opportunity. And not everyone has access to that, but that's what deep portage can offer is, Hey, we have people that can show you how to do that. (laughs) You know, we, you know, find a connection to the land um, that makes you want to come back and appreciate, like you said, of, I mean, when I go, I think I went out to Montana for the first time this fall and I just stood in those prairies and I <laughs> felt bad for my buddy because I was sitting there trying to identify grasses and flowers <laughs> the, you know, while the dogs are out running, right? And that's what does it for me. I'm like, I am content. I don't care if we see a bird. I mean, I do, but this, it, was, it was so cool to be in that type of habitat and, and something special like that.
0: It is a special thing. Well, Neil, appreciate everything you're doing up there. Again, if people want to sign up, I encourage you to uh, sign your kids up sooner than later, Deep Portage Learning Center. And you'll see a link on the top of the website called Summer Camps. And the one that we're talking about today is the Upland Bird Camp. Sounds like a pretty incredible opportunity. I, I thank you for all the work you and your team are doing, Neil. And here's to another 50 years.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me today. And yeah, I look forward to another awesome camp season. Hey, like I told my wife the other day, only three and a half months left to go. Oh <laughs> in the first yeah, we'll be high. back. in or four months. So. Love it. Uh, so, your glass is half right.
0: full. I like that yeah, a lot. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll be back next week with another episode of the Flush Podcast.